ಜ್ಞಾನಂಜನಶಲಾಕಾಯ Translation, he traveled in that way through the various planets as the air passes uncontrolled in every direction, causing through the air in that great and splendid aerial mansion which could fly at his will, he surpassed even the demigods. Purport, the planets occupied by the demigods are restricted to their own orbits, but Kadam Muni, by his yogic power, could travel all over the different directions of the universe without restriction. The living entities who are within the universe are called conditioned souls. That is, they are not free to move everywhere. We are inhabitants of this earthly globe. We cannot move freely to other planets. In the modern age, man is trying to go to other planets, but so far he has been unsuccessful. It is not possible to travel to any other planets because by the laws of nature even the demigods cannot move from one planet to another. But Kadam Muni by his yogic power could surpass the strength of the demigods and travel in space in all directions. The comparison here is very suitable. The words Yatha Anilaha indicate that as the air is free to move anywhere without restriction, so Kadam Muni unrestricted, unrestrictedly traveled in all directions of the universe. Here is described how Kadam Muni is by his yogic power traveling throughout the universe without restriction and in this way surpassing even the demigods who are described in this verse as Vaimanika. Vaimanika means those who have planes, airplanes, Viman. The word airplane is used because there's no uh, English word which directly corresponds to Viman, but airplane is close enough, although the airplanes of the demigods are not like the airplanes which we see flying over here as we are close to the airport. They are not like that kind of plane which requires fuel and they sometimes crash, they make a lot of noise. But the airplanes of the demigods are pushpaviman and they're decorated with, with flowers and they fly at the will of the demigods. They don't have to, the demigods don't have to take a, a course in piloting airplanes. But by the punya, pious activities which they have accrued in their lives on earth, they attain the facility of uh, having such airplanes at their disposal and being able to use them. They, they travel at will, just like Kadamuni's aerial mansion is being, it, it travels at his will. Although Prabhupada mentions here that the demigods are restricted in their movements to their own planets. This refers to some demigods, not all demigods, because we know that some of the, well, some of the demigods, they can travel even without planes. 
the inhabitants of Siddha Loka. Simply by their desire, they are in because they're invested with yoga siddhi from a previous life, they're able to go here and there in the universe without any plane, without any device. Simply they transfer themselves. And other demigods, they can pilot their planes, the leading demigods, those who are uh, sharers in yagya, those who take, those who accept the offerings of the humans on earth who perform yagyas. They previously used to travel to earth to personally receive those offerings. Nowadays no one does offerings properly anyway. No one's qualified to do so. So the demigods are not coming. We also find that the demigods, they uh, appeared, they, they regularly made appearances in Krishna Lila when we have the Deva Stuti chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, second cap- chapter of the tenth canto, in which the demigods they manifest in the prison house of Kangsa to offer prayers to Krishna Darva Stuti, that's called, sorry. They offer prayers to Krishna who is within the womb of Devaki. And we also find that during the Ras Lila, the description of Krishna's Ras Lila, that the demigods in their planes were hovering above and showering down flowers. So at least the, the leading demigods, they had the facility to move here and there in the universe. But many of them don't. Not all the demigods are sharers in sacrifice, only the the leading ones. Anyway, the point given here is that Kadama Muni, um, he had tremendous facility for material enjoyment. As a result of his yogic power, one who performs austerities, especially those who perform austerities, they become invested with mystic power. This is not necessarily saintliness. It's often misunderstood that someone who has mystic powers, they must be saintly. But there are many persons with mystic powers who are outright demoniac. The Asuras, they also have mystic powers, sometimes surpassing that of the demigods. We find that Maya, Dhanava, was very expert in mystic arts. He's the, you could say, the sorcerer of the, among the asuras. And in their fights with the demigods, he would, after some of them were killed, he would bring them back to life by dipping them in a tub of amrita. So not just the tub of amrita, but by his mystic incantations, which mantras, he was able to revive the killed demons. Means to bring the means the uh, spirit soul which leaves the body at the time of death was called back again and the body rejuvenated. So there there are many even demoniac persons who have mystic powers. Of course Maya Dhanava he also played some good role. 
in some point he when Krishna had Arjuna burn the Kandava forest and at that time Maya Dhanava who was therein he took shelter of Arjuna and and then Arjuna blessed he blessed Arjuna by constructing the Indraprastha palace so it's all part of Krishna's pastimes even the yeah and then that palace was built in such a way that those who weren't familiar with it the, to them the water looked like land and the land looked like water so Duryodhana came in striding one day very proudly and plop fell down in the water which you know he's a big king and it made him look pretty stupid and then all Krishna's queens who are present there started laughing and Yudhishthir restrains them and Krishna said no no let them laugh let Duryodhana become angry and that was the beginning of Duryodhana's of course he was always trying to get rid of the Pandavas but at that time he became determined to to uh, what's the word to repay it's not exactly the right word to requite his anger by destroying the Pandavas by any means whatsoever so even the demons may have a part to play in Krishna's Leela someone I, I saw recently someone was suggesting that persons like Vivekananda and Paramahamsa Yogananda who we don't usually want to pollute the spiritual atmosphere of Radha Raspihari Dham by mentioning the names of these people but just for the sake of giving an example we shall do so someone suggested that by their going to the west they in some way prepared the ground for Srila Prabhupada going there which I thought that can't be right those people couldn't be. They, they made things more difficult in many ways because they then be, what happened is that even today if we see the western textbooks of so, where they describe so called Hinduism they generally think that it's they state Hinduism the the ultimate in Hindu, every Hindu thinks that the supreme is a homogeneous oneness impersonal light which is not true I mean even traditionally in what we for the sake of a better word might call Hinduism there are many who have opposed these ideas the Vaishnav Sampradayas especially in South India the followers of Sripad Ramanuja and Madhvacharya hate this idea of course nowadays many of the traditional Sri Vaishnava Iyengas their followers of again excuse me for polluting the atmosphere Sai Baba so because how can these people Vivekananda Paramahamsa Yoga how can they have anything to do with preparing the situation for the topmost devotee of the Lord Srila Prabhupada to come but then you could say in some ways because at least what they preached is impersonal fuzz <coughs> is Paramah anyway we won't say his name again he has a 
He's made some edition of Bhagavad Gita in English. It's so big. It's like three times bigger than Bhagavad Gita as it is. And it's all nonsense from beginning to end. What else can you expect from such a person? Just impersonal lucubrations. But it could be said that in some way they prepared the ground for Prabhupada to come because at least people in the West got used to the idea of there being swamis from India and they had some idea of that there is there are such concepts as reincarnation so to some extent it could be just like Shankaracharya what he preached is all nonsense but uh, that was required at the time to excuse me would you mind not leaning on Prabhupada's Vyasa because it's it's meant for worship not for us to lean on. So Shankaracharya's preaching was required at that time because he preached, he, he's, what he preached is condemned as covered Buddhism. Prachandam bhudam ucchate, mayavadam asat shastram, prachandam bhudam ucchate, bedna maniya bodhoito nastik, Beda Shroy Nastik Yabad Bodha Kayodik. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has condemned the philosophy of Shankaracharya as being covered Buddhism. And even worse than Buddhism in some ways. But at least Shankaracharya's teachings, they achieved the purpose of establishing the necessity of following the Vedic teachings, which Buddha Dev or Shakya Singh had he had uh, rejected the Vedas Nindasi Yagya Vedha Aha Shruti Jatam he he criticized the performance of sacrifices which are given in Shruti in the Vedas so even the demons they may play some role in Krishna's pastimes. Shankaracharya, his philosophy is horrible. It makes devotees want to cringe because it states the Supreme Lord and the Jiva to be one. It's, it's most distasteful to devotees. But by attempting to establish that on the basis of, the, of Vedic knowledge, he provides a platform for devotees to very strongly establish the fact that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Purushaṁ paramam divyam. He is the Supreme Transcendental Personality of Godhead. Because actually everyone, conditioned souls, everyone has this misconception that the Supreme is impersonal. It's, it's a latent disease in every conditioned soul it has become so popular because Shankaracharya has given some form, although he ultimately doesn't believe in any form, but he has given form to the latent misconception of every conditioned soul that this Supreme is impersonal and I am equal to the Supreme. So by giving shape to that misconception, Shankaracharya, especially on the basis of the Vedic literature, the Shankaracharya is given a platform by which the Vaishnava Acharyas can analyze the same statements that he has made 
and give their proper understanding. So, in this way, the, the Vedic understanding, it's, uh, it's subtle. It's not, it's not so easy to understand that we can just pick it up and read a book. Even material knowledge, the higher, in the higher levels of any subject, you can't understand it just by reading a book. Especially in the higher level. Actually, even children, they can't even understand 2 plus 2 equals 4 unless it's explained to them. When they're first at school. Even to learn to read, you have to take help from someone. And then by reading, uh, one can acquire some knowledge. But just like, for instance, one cannot become a a doctor simply by reading textbooks of medicine. One has to be guided in their practical application. If someone's, someone offers to do a... someone has a heart attack and someone offers to do surgery for them, he says, well, are you a doctor? Yeah, I read, a, I read a book on surgery, so I'm willing to do it for you. Cheap. Will anyone agree? He's not being guided. So guidance is required to understand what is the Vedic message. Otherwise we are certain to misunderstand it. And in fact the Vedic literature is even constructed in such a way that it is not directly, much of it is not directly understandable. It's not like one of these books, Teach Yourself Bengali in 30 Days or something like that. I saw some book, Teach Yourself Hinduism. Oh, a very, very strange title. Okay. Learn Hinduism in 30 days. What does that mean? It's a meaningless title. So it's, the Vedic literature is not meant to be a do-it-yourself manual. Just like you have, you can buy these books, they give the notes for the course books. And people, they don't study the course books, they study the notebooks, all the essential points. And cram it in and then they sit their exam and try and pass it like that. But Vedic knowledge at its highest level or its intrinsic level, which is love of Krishna, is not academic knowledge, but it is experiential. The Vedas, they give us knowledge of that which is not this Vedyam Vasava Matra Vastu. This Srimad Bhagavatam describes the actual object of knowledge. But that is not to be understood simply by reading, nor even by hearing. Therefore the Vedas themselves say that it is not simply by reading, nor by hearing even, that one can understand the absolute truth. But by his mercy one can understand, because the Vedic knowledge is ultimately to be experienced. That experience is the experience of Krishna's mercy, which a devotee receives by surrendering to him. But even the impetus to do that, one has to be guided in doing so by one who is 
himself expert. And again, expertise doesn't mean material expertise. An example can be given of playing music that one has to be guided how to play nicely. And then one gets a, when one is trained, then one gets a feeling for it, that feeling for music. That's not something that be, can be given by book knowledge. That is a gift from Krishna. One has the feel of how the music should go. There are basic patterns which one should follow and when one is expert in following them then automatically he can do improvisation that will enhance the original text, the musical text. And But that improvisation, that's also even though he's spontaneously and freely doing so, the musician, but still that's grounded in the basic laws of music, which he follows naturally, because they've become second nature to him. So in the same way, in Krishna consciousness, we are trained in rules and regulations. But when one becomes perfect in those rules and regulations, he spontaneously serves Krishna. But that spontaneity is based, even it's natural, but with, without even thinking about it, the rules and regulations are followed. Just like an expert musician, he improvises, but his improvisation that follows all the rules, or, or, or it's based in the pattern of tal, loy, all these parts of the rhythm and the tempo, all these features of music. So here, getting back to the subject of the verse, Kadamuni is traveling freely. People want freedom. Kadamuni became free. He was actually free because he was surrendered to Krishna. It seems to be a contradictory statement. One is a surrendered servant and he's free. That doesn't seem to make sense, does it? We should become a surrendered servant willing to do whatever, just doing what Krishna wants us to do. Nothing else. Like Prabhupada used to say, like a sold out animal. Whatever the Lord wants, we are prepared to do. We have no... What is that? This uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says, Nidja Prati Cheshta. My own... What is that he says? Can you remember? My own endeavors on my own behalf. I, we don't... Now we, we don't consider such things. We're only interested in Krishnate Akila Cheshta. All our endeavors should be simply for the sake of Krishna. So then how is one free? Well, that is freedom for the jiva. The jiva may think, I am free. But he is bound by the laws of nature. Just like a cow is tied up 
at the leg, maybe a long rope. She has freedom to move, but only so far. And as soon as she, as soon as she goes to a certain distance, then she can move no longer. Actually, in India, they tie, they generally tie the cows up on such a short rope that they have hardly any room to move. But uh, they have some some grazing area, and after that, they can't move. You saw, many times you see the the calf is tied up, and the mother is just there being milked, and the calf is trying and trying and pulling, but can't move beyond the scope of the rope. It can go in the other direction. But only in the circumference that is allowed by the rope. So in the same way, the, the jiva has some freedom, even within the modes of material nature. But that freedom is very restricted. But a devotee, by serving Krishna... He is granted freedom by the Lord because it is accepted that he will not misuse that. So he has he's given more freedom. Like Narad Muni, Prabhupada described him as a transcendental spaceman. He can travel wherever he likes. And often it's described here in Srimad Bhagavatam how devotees, they will arrive in some place, they're wandering simply at their will. Just like the four Kumaras, they were not devotees at the time, but they were liberated, ganis, because they liberated in the sense they had no desire to enjoy this material world. So they were simply wandering and they decided, okay, let's go to Vaikuntha. We heard about it, let's see what's going on. There. So they wander at their will. But Krishna arranges for them to meet different people and preach Krishna consciousness because they don't misuse that facility. They are given the freedom to wander here and there. Even within our ISKCON, that principle applies to some extent that the sannyasis, to a large extent, they can chalk out their own programs and it's they travel here and there and it's understood that wherever they go they have the freedom to do so because it's understood that wherever they go they are supposed just to engage in Krishna Kata, Krishna Kirtan Krishna Seva whereas that same freedom of movement is not given to a new Brahmacharya because he doesn't, he hasn't picked up that motive of Krishna Tayakila Chaishta. Everything should be done for the sake of pleasing Krishna. So for him he requires to be in a disciplined ashram atmosphere where he's he accepts the discipline. Now you have to rise. Now you have to do this service. You want to go anywhere, even to go outside the gate, you should take permission then as he becomes somewhat older as a devotee, then all right, you can go outside the gate without permission. But then if he's seen going outside the gate regularly to drink limkas, then that that facility might be withdrawn because he's misusing. 
So freedom is granted by the Lord to the extent that one will not misuse it. That is his mercy upon the jiva. Because if a jiva is given freedom, more freedom than he is capable of properly using, then by misusing it he will cause harm to himself and others. So Kadamamuni was given freedom to travel here and there. It's described that he's doing so in a mood of enjoyment, but as I was discussing last time I was here, that the apparent mood of enjoyment of a devotee is not like that of a materialistic person because ultimately his motive is to do everything for the satisfaction of Krishna. And we can see that this was demonstrated in the life of Kadamamuni because he uh, ultimately gave birth to we say gave birth to he who gives birth to all namely the Supreme Personality of Godhead in his form of Kapiladev that name Kapiladev is very famous in India maybe not so much among the young generation but in the previous generation even I who have no interest in cricket whatsoever could not help but know the name Kapiladev but people don't know who the original Kapila Dev is. You can go door to door and tell people, we have a book about Kapila Dev and they'll all buy it. You can sell this, what is that, the teachings of Lord Kapila? Tell them this is a book about Kapila Dev. They say, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll buy one of them. And then they'll look inside and see it's, you should give up sense gratification. Cricket is nonsense. I don't know if it says that in the book, but it's implied. So Kadamamuni is coursing throughout the universe. Prabhupada mentions herein that in the modern age man is trying to go to other planets, but so far he has been unsuccessful. This text was written after the one small step for man and one great step for mankind was filmed in the Arizona desert or maybe the, maybe the Nevada desert. Prabhupada said they, they haven't gone to other planets whereas the, according to modern mythology man has been to the moon. Of course in modern so-called scientific classification. The moon doesn't count as a planet, but as a satellite of the earth. The Prabhupada said it is not possible to travel to any other planets because by the laws of nature even the demigods cannot do so. Very famous in the history of the universe, among those who know the history of the universe, and we're not talking about our modern astronomers or Historians, we're talking about those who know the Puran Shastra. They actually know the history. So, very famous is the story of Trishanku Maharaj, who, on the strength of Vishwamitra's yogic prowess, wanted to go to the heavenly planet. So, Vishwamitra was pushing him up, and Indra was pushing him down, and eventually he landed up in the middle. neither here nor there. So we say that if someone's, anyone who's 
stuck in any position, neither here nor there, we say Trishanku in different Indian languages. Do they say that in Hindi? I don't think so. In Gujarat, in Hindi. It's a common thing. Now, I don't know if people nowadays know the story because they they watch cricket on TV instead of hearing Ramayana and Mahabharata. But Trishanku is the example of how one cannot go to another planet by with without acquiring the requisite qualifications. Ravana is another example. He was so powerful, but even he, by force, his attempt to go to the heavenly planets, and not only to go, but to make a pathway that all the residents of the earth could just go with him. He was unsuccessful. He was not able to do so. There are one or two exceptions in the history of the universe. Hiranyakashipu and his great-grandson, Bali Maharaj, they were able to enter and occupy the heavenly planet by force. But that also was temporary. In both cases, they got removed by the Supreme Lord. One In one case, in a very horrible way, and in another case, in a very sweet way. But they were not able to stay for very long. So the general rule is that one cannot go to another planet without getting proper sanction. So this idea that man is traveling or is planning to travel to other planets, Prabhupada rejected that. It's not possible. You can't go. About 1967, yeah, it must have been 1967, maybe 1968 in San Francisco, one TV reporter or newspaper reporter was asking Prabhupada. Prabhupada was saying, well, your attempt to go to the moon will not be successful because you cannot go. And the reporter asked, well, what if they do go and they are successful? Then won't that cause your disciples to lose faith in you? And Prabhupada said, well, they won't be successful because they can't go. And then the reporter asked, well, what if they do go? And Prabhupada said, well, they can't go. And it went back and forward like this. They're not going to go. It's not possible. And he said, well, what if they do go? Well, they can't go. And then they did go. We saw it on TV. Prabhupada also saw it on TV and he was laughing. This is all cheating. According to the Vedic version, one cannot go from one planet to another. And the attempt to do so will be unsuccessful. Even if apparently they go to another planet, that they say they went to the moon, but then they say they found dust only. So what was the value of going? There's plenty of dust right here on this planet. So why make such a big endeavor? Actually, people, they clean their rooms to clean out the dust to get rid of it. It's something not desirable. But they went all the way to the moon and brought back some dust. So they say. Which, it's something to be thrown away. But they went all the way spending billions of dollars to bring something which every housewife every morning just sweeps out of the room. 
So even if they did go, what is the value? And they had to make so, so much effort to go, but even if they went, they weren't able to enter into that atmosphere. means the atmosphere which is described in Shastra of the moon being a heavenly planet. They were cheated of that because they're not they're only able to perceive on a very gross level. And then again, if we say, well, even if you go to the moon, it's with so much effort, but the demigods, they just go without any effort. It's just like, if you want to, if you want to go to the uh, ashram here after class, you don't think, you don't plan it out or calculate. It's just a simple, normal thing to go. But if an if an ant was wanting to go from here to the ashram, that would be a major endeavor. He'd probably die before he got there. We get trodden on or couldn't find the way. Or, so according to one's ability, going from one place to another is relatively easy or extremely difficult. So for the for those who have the requisite qualification, they can easily go to the heavenly planets. But for those who don't, it's a very difficult endeavor, what we find very difficult to do, those who have the siddhi, they can easily go. So we're making so much effort. The people who are researching how to go to the moon in the 1960s, probably most of them have already died by now, and they didn't go to the moon. And now there's another generation of researchers, and they're going on researching. In the meantime, they're all dying and they're going, they're having an easy journey to other planets and probably not the heavenly planets. They're going down in the other direction. For the sinful activity of trying to go to the moon by the improper means. So, <clears throat> what is the value in such an endeavor? Even if you go by legitimate means to the moon, what is the value? One should endeavor to go to that place from which there is no return. That place where one can live in full freedom, in full happiness. That is the planet of Golok Vrindavan in the service of Krishna. So as Kardamamuni is wandering here and there in the universe, here, this place, that place, so this class has been like that also, wandering around, from subject to subject, and if anyone has any comments or questions on it, they can kindly submit them now. Hare Krishna. Vaprus. How do you say? Vaprus means question. Any question? No question. All right. So I'll just say one more thing. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Krishna Krishna. Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare.